Hey, it's Bradley Block, otolaryngologist and host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast. Wow, Ryan's seat is comfortable. A little lumpy here. Wait a second, what's this? It's stuffed with cash. This index fund business is a lie. He keeps all the money in his mattress. Only kidding, only kidding. I'm actually recording from my home on Long Island, and as you can hear, I avoided the accent. Mostly. I interview guests that cover a wide range of topics, all that have the singular goal of helping physicians become the best versions of ourselves in and out of the exam room. So in the next few weeks, I'll be interviewing guests to discuss issues like how to help our patients work through decision-making, what our leaders should do to decrease physician burnout on a systems level, the Venn diagram that is medicine, marriage, and money, being an American physician practicing abroad, and ethically utilizing the power of placebo. So let's start the show. This is part one of two with Dr. Stephanie Sog, who is back for her second appearance. I know that's confusing. We did an episode a long time ago, which was one of my favorite. We just re-released it. And this is part one of two because it's a long interview, so we broke it up into two parts. Dr. Sog is a clinical psychologist who's been at the MGH Weight Center since 2003. On our previous episode, we discussed the importance of language when discussing someone's weight. So on this episode, we talk about when and how to bring it up. We talk about how body acceptance is actually important to sustained weight loss, although on the surface it may seem like a contradiction. We talk about the influence of sleep, mental health, and when it's time to make recommendations, we start to get into what actually works. And as with most things, it is complicated. Dr. Sog earned her PhD in clinical psychology from Rutgers University in 1998 and completed a postdoctoral fellowship with Harvard Medical School, with which she's now affiliated. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Sog conducts research on obesity and bariatric surgery and the intersection between obesity and addiction, and has published widely on obesity and related topics. She's an author of the Boston Interview for Bariatric Surgery and of the official ASMBS recommendations for the pre-surgical psychosocial evaluation of bariatric surgery patients. She's the director of the Weight Center Rotation for Behavioral Medicine, Psychology Interns, and is active in national and international scientific obesity and weight loss surgery societies. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Stephanie Sog, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be back. Thanks very much for asking me. First question is, can people lose weight and keep it off? Because if the answer is no, then it obviates the need for the rest of this Right. Discussion, right? There's no point in discussing with patients how to go about losing weight or if they even should consider it if it can't be done because it's a common thought that it just nothing works. So, first question can people lose weight and keep it off? So, there's not a simple answer to that question. I'm going to do my best to answer it. I think you sort of have to qualify the answer to that. How much weight? How high was the weight when the person started? Obesity is a distinct metabolic state. And obesity changes the way the body regulates weight and favors defending a higher weight. So once someone has reached 
the level of obesity, which we define as a body mass index of 30, or we define as a certain percentage of body fat, waist circumference, what have you. But once somebody's in that state, it becomes harder to lose weight. And if you're asking me, can someone go from a BMI of 50 to a BMI of 25, which is the upper level of a healthy BMI, scientifically, statistically, it seems to be very difficult to do that. If we look at, is it possible to lose the amount of weight that has been found to help reduce health risks and weight-related complications of obesity, which is 5% of your initial weight to 10% of your initial weight? Can people lose that much weight and keep it off? Yes, they can. It's hard to lose weight and it's harder to keep the weight off than it is to lose it because once you've lost weight, then you're in a different metabolic state that is fighting to try to get back to that previous weight. But that kind of weight loss is possible and larger weight losses are certainly possible and it is possible to keep the weight off, especially, you know, our most effective treatment for obesity is bariatric surgery, what we now call metabolic and bariatric surgery to acknowledge the metabolic impact of the surgery and the metabolic mechanisms of action of the surgery, but it takes a lot of work and it's difficult because human biology is just programmed and really evolved to defend a higher weight. And there are lots of redundant biological mechanisms in place to keep us from losing weight and few or none to prevent us from gaining too much weight. So it's hard, but it can be done, and your expectations need to be reasonable. There's a whole body of research that has been done regarding people's expectations of how much weight they want to lose and expect to lose. We'll ask people, for instance, who are entering a weight loss program, what is your ideal weight? What's your dream weight? What's your happy weight? What's the highest weight that you would be satisfied if you got down to that weight? What's your disappointed weight? Meaning if you lost this amount of weight, you'd be disappointed. And all of the research, regardless of what population it's being done on, shows that people have very unrealistic expectations of weight loss. And that if you look at what they can expect to lose based on statistics and based on whatever the method of weight loss is that they're embarking upon, most of them realistically probably wouldn't even get to the dissatisfied weight, much less the happy weight or the dream weight or the ideal weight. So the research shows that universally people's expectations and goals for weight loss are unrealistic. The good news is that research also shows that once people have been through a weight loss program and they've lost some weight, even though they rarely have gotten to the weight they hoped to get to, they are much more satisfied with that outcome than they would have predicted that they would be. So their disappointing weight isn't disappointing. It's not as disappointing as they would have said it would have been. Although I actually find sometimes, especially with bariatric surgery, that patients move the goalposts. And when they talk to me before surgery, they say, oh, I'll be happy if I get to X weight. And then when I see them, they've gotten below X weight, but now they want to get to X minus 10. And we sort of talk about how to avoid self-torture and not 
keep moving the goalposts and not at all even think in terms of numeric weight goals. Something that plagues high achievers, right? This is a physician audience where we're all high achievers, where like you want to get to this goal, yet you're not satisfied once you've achieved that goal because now you've got this next goal. Like it's this balance of aspiring to be better, but also being satisfied where you are. Although one difference between that scenario and the scenario of somebody who has, who wants to lose more weight is that there is a biological limit to how much weight they can lose. I oftentimes sort of say to patients, you know, you don't have a goal to be 5'10 if you're 5'8". That's how tall you are. And that's biologically based and no amount of hanging from a bar by your hands is going to make you taller. Obviously, the degree of control over weight is somewhat larger than the degree of control over height. But I really talk to patients about not having numeric weight goals. And because you don't have full control over that and psychology research showing that when the goals that you're invested in are something that you don't have total control over, that's very discouraging and not great for your mental health. So I talk to people, look, the only piece of the equation that you can affect is what and how am I eating and how much am I moving? And especially I say this to patients after surgery, if you're worrying that you haven't lost enough weight, take a moment and review, am I eating reasonably healthfully most of the time? Am I following the 80-20 rule, which we can talk about in a moment? And am I getting enough physical activity? And if the answer is yes, you're doing all that you can. And it's important to let the worry about the number go. Are you going to be happier if you're 198 than if you're 200, just because 200 has two zeros after it? In reality, no. And your body may not let you get to 198. So you have to be satisfied with the journey, with the process, not the outcome. I know I'm exercising regularly. I know I'm eating well. I am satisfied with that, even though I'm not getting the outcome that I was hoping for. Well, you can't force someone to be satisfied or say, well, you should, or you have to be satisfied with it because they may not be satisfied with it, but there isn't anything else they can be doing. Yeah. So that's the piece you drive yourself crazy if you're doing everything you can be doing and the outcome is not exactly what you want because by definition, there's nothing else you can really do. And then if you're not getting the outcome that you want, then you say, why am I even doing this to begin with? And then you go back to your previous habits. Exactly. I apologize that I don't recall whether we talked about this. You say exercise, I say physical activity because the word exercise has some bad connotations for some people. No, no, no. When I'm with patients, I usually use physical activity Right. since our previous conversation. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad I affected one person's practice. That's excellent. But this is a conversation I have with patients all the time because when I'm doing an initial evaluation, one of the things I'm looking at is what their physical activity habits are currently and what they've been in the past. And I will say, what are you doing for physical activity right now? And they'll say, oh, not a lot or not as much as I should And then I will ask, have you had times in the past when you were regularly doing some kind of physical activity? First of all, people underestimate the amount of physical activity that's needed to have an impact on weight, which for most people is a lot. But they'll say, oh, you know, I went to the gym every day for three months. They'll say it didn't work. 
So I stopped and I'll say, okay, when you say it didn't work, how are we defining something working? And they'll say, well, I didn't lose any weight. And that's when I say the research is very clear that for most people, physical activity is not going to result in a significant weight loss. So it makes perfect sense that if you were doing it to lose weight and you didn't lose weight, of course you stopped. It's hard work. It takes up a lot of time. That makes sense. What's really important is to take a look at what are the other benefits that physical activity gets you? And those are myriad and really beneficial and really important. So I'll ask them when you were doing physical activity four days a week, how was your energy level? How were you sleeping? And I talk to people about the impact of regular physical activity on one's ability to handle stress and cope with stress and concentrate. Also, not unimportantly, if you're doing physical activity on a regular basis, even if your weight doesn't budge, your health's going to be much better. And all these other tangible benefits. So if you change your, and, and also I talk about the fact that physical activity may not help you lose a lot of weight, but it is absolutely crucial for preventing weight gain and especially weight regain. And I'll ask the person, when you stopped going to the gym, did your weight go up? Yes, actually, I gained a lot of weight. And I'll say, so you said it wasn't working because you didn't lose weight. But if we define working as keeping your weight from going up, it was working. I try to point out lots of other reasons for doing it. And I actually had a patient today who was talking about the fact that the whole kind of enterprise of weight loss with quotes around it just made her feel resentful and angry. But we had talked about some behaviors that she had wanted to to go back to doing. And we were talking about independent from whether it has any impact on your weight. When you were doing those things, it felt good to do them. And you felt in control of your life and you felt on top of things and you felt like you were taking care of yourself. And can we let that be the motivation, not the number of pounds that come off? One, one of the other interviews I've done is with BJ Fogg, who is a behavioral scientist out of Stanford. And he wrote this book on tiny habits. And one of my big takeaways from that is motivation tends to wax and wane with time, usually wane. A hundred percent. So when I've been talking to my patients about physical activity, I say, what do you like to do? What do you enjoy doing that's physical activity? And once you find a way to work it into your schedule, because there's a big barrier there just finding time. Once you've found the time and you've managed to fit in your schedule, you're going to look forward to doing it because you enjoy it, not because it's means to an end. So it needs to be something that you enjoy because if you don't enjoy it, eventually the motivation is going to wane and you're going to stop doing it. Even if you do enjoy it, the motivation may wane, especially if you become busy. But you don't need as much motivation if it's something that you enjoy. Absolutely. And if it's a habit, you don't need as much motivation. The other thing, because sometimes the suggestion that there's any kind of physical activity that someone might enjoy might just seem outrageous to somebody, to one of my patients. So then I will talk about, okay, what do you hate the least? Or also, I'm a big fan of multitasking. I really, my favorite thing to do in life is to check something off of my to-do list. So I'll talk to them about 
oftentimes, like I had an elderly relative that I would talk to once a week and I would always make sure that I would be out walking while I was talking to her because then I was getting my physical activity in, but also having this conversation or reading the New York Times on my phone while I was sitting on the exercise bike back when I used to go to the gym or killing two birds with one stone. I live in a city and I get a lot of my physical activity by walking to places that I need to go that I could be taking the train or getting an Uber or a Lyft. But, you know, I had a bunch of appointments today and I walked to all of them and I got my physical activity in, but I also got to where I needed to go. So I didn't have to choose between going to the doctor or the dentist and getting my physical activity in. I love it. I love it. The next question is, when is it even appropriate to bring this up with a patient? How do we even read the room and know if we should mention the possibility of weight loss? Well, that's a really good question. And I think that it probably depends on what the context is in which you are seeing the patient and what your specialty is and what the problem is that the patient is bringing to you. So if you're a primary care doctor, family practice doctor, your job is the whole patient. And your job is looking at all of the different factors that are important for health and weight would be one of them, just as much as sleep is. I I would like to see a world in which primary care doctors were haranguing patients as much about their sleep as they do about their weight. Well, I'm sure there's a trickle down effect. The better the sleep, the better their mental health, the more likely they are to not have as much of an issue with their weight. Yeah, well, there's there's direct and indirect relationships between sleep and weight. So, and weight regulation. So, you're killing two birds with one stone there, which we've already established I like to do. You had said to me in a, in another communication, you're an ENT, correct? Yes. And so you're dealing with patients who have sleep apnea. And obviously weight is incredibly germane to sleep apnea. And if you're dealing with a problem that weight is clearly related to, it would be strange and irresponsible not to mention it at all. But it is also extremely important to avoid the other extreme, which is to say, look, you got to lose weight or this won't go away. Or if you would just lose weight, it would be fine. This is an extreme example, but burned into my memory is a colleague of mine was giving a talk. She works in Canada and she was talking about a patient of hers who had been in terrible pain for years and her BMI was very high. And the doctors just kept on dismissing her and saying they wouldn't do x-rays. They wouldn't do imaging. They just said, you got to lose weight. Look, it's obvious. You're too heavy. You've got to lose weight. And she finally, after several years, went to a practitioner who did an x-ray and found she'd been walking around on a broken hip for years. So with pain, especially, even if it's true that losing weight would help the pain, You don't just not treat the pain and say, well, go lose weight. You certainly wouldn't just throw a lot of opioids at the person. You would want to take a holistic approach. And you'd also want to be realistic about how much of the problem would clear up if the person lost weight, right? So 
high cholesterol. We know that there's a component of that for some people, a very large component that is genetic. And no matter what they eat or no matter what their weight is, they're going to have high cholesterol. So I think if it's germane to the medical issue, it's important to bring it up. It's very important not to go out of your, it is important to go out of your way, not to convey any sense that you think it is quote, just their weight. And if they would just lose weight, the problem would go away because patients, as someone who works with patients with obesity all day, every day, this is one of the hardest experiences and most painful experiences that they have with their physicians is being told this because it feels like their problems not being taken seriously and they are being judged. So not only, oh, just lose weight, but also there's this implied, and this is all your fault anyway. If you could just control yourself, then you wouldn't have this problem. Whether the doctor means that or not, I'm assuming that most doctors don't, that's how it feels. And that's a very good way for the patient to A, not listen to you and B, find a different doctor. The next question is, okay, if it's important for me to bring it up, but I have to bring it up in a careful way, how do I do that? Would you say that's the next question? That is on the list. Definitely the next question. Thank you for asking it. That's an excellent question. (laughs) That that leads us to how do you bring it up in a way that's sensitive? And I think I wouldn't suggest any one specific script because I think that it has to be consistent with your own personal patient interaction style and your vocabulary, but you might try something like this may be a sensitive topic, but I think that there's a role for talking about your weight here. Is it all right with you if we discuss that? Okay. So start off asking permission. Right. And also if you listen to the words that I use saying there's a role for talking about your weight suggest that it's related, but it's not the whole problem. It's one of the components. And we're going to talk about it within a whole holistic view of what's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, where do we go from there? So now they said, okay, listen, I've spoken to a lot of doctors. They've all told me this. It's not that I wasn't aware of this problem. I've tried. Nothing seems to work. All right, smarty pants, what do you recommend I do? Okay. So here, this sounds like a completely different question, which is what do we advise patients who are open to the suggestion that they lose weight? Well, how often do we encounter patients that don't recognize, like this is where we're going to get a little political, but like Bill Maher was like, doctors never talk to patients about their weight. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, you know, health and wellness is not a part of doctor. This is where like the preventative medicine and functional medicine. And yeah, we talk to our patients about it all the time, but we're not necessarily equipped with useful strategies. Right. And in fact, there's a whole body of research, particularly with primary care physicians as the participants that's looked at what do you say to patients about weight? What do you recommend Do you feel you got any training in this? How confident do you feel that anything works? How confident do you feel in your ability to give people useful guidance? And there's a big gap there. Just do keto, bro. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Don't get me started on those kinds of things because that's especially upsetting. It's so simple. Just do it. 
I used to have a colleague at work who was vegan and just advised all the patients to be vegan, which first of all, doesn't necessarily make you lose weight. And in fact, eating vegan and vegetarian can sometimes make you gain weight because of the types of foods that you're having to. Oreos are vegan. Yeah, exactly. But I think one thing that it's helpful to think about is the fact that there is no one weight loss intervention that's going to be acceptable and feasible and effective for every single person. And so I think the place to start is, is this something that you're interested in working on or getting help with? And what have you tried before? What worked? What didn't? And just educating people about the range of options that there are out there, of which there are many, but certainly empirically validated behavioral weight loss treatments. There are now some very effective weight loss medications, although those really should be used along with a program of healthy eating and activity. And there's metabolic and bariatric surgery as well. Is that sustainable? Are those medications, right? Because are those medic? I'm not familiar with them, but are they used indefinitely? Because I would guess, and I might be mistaken, that once you stop the medication, you're back to where you started. An excellent point. Yes. In general, medications work as long as you are taking them. The way that they used to discuss this at our orientation gave some patients the mistaken belief that they would be forced to take them for the rest of their lives. And I would always sort of clarify, you don't have to take it for the rest of your life, but once you stop taking it, you likely would regain the weight. So yes, they only work for as long as you're on them, but they're in most cases, some of the older ones are not FDA approved for indefinite use. So using them for longer than a certain amount of time is considered off-label. But the ones that we're finding really effective are the GLP-1 agonists, which are all injectables, which some patients understandably are reluctant to consider. But those are, as far as I know, approved for indefinite use, unless they are not effective. There's dosing rules and prescribing rules for all of these medications that if a patient hasn't lost a certain percentage of their initial weight, by I think 12 weeks in, then that medication is not going to be effective for that person and it is not appropriate to continue on that med. And it might be appropriate to consider a different med or adding another med. Remember, this was only part one, part two coming out shortly. So make sure to check it out. Everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine and we are not providing medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed, and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.